As it says up there, the reading is taken from chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 of uh, Paul's first letter to the Ephesians. It can be found on page 1173 in the Church Bible, if you'd like to take one from the end of the rows. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Graham. Thank you. Just got to that stage where do I need them or do I not? Yes, I do. <laughs> so I think I need some prayer and uh, let's pray before I share my thoughts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We pray that you will pour out that grace on us this morning. That our hearts and our minds will be open to hear your word to us. Please speak to us today, Lord, we pray. Amen. I wonder if any of you have ever had uh, what we might call a, a near-death experience. Uh, I know certainly one or two, I'm looking round, I know for sure have, would say they have had, and probably more of you that I don't know about. And one of the uh, commonest things that people say when they've had a narrow ex escape from death is, why me? Why me? especially if it was a traumatic event and others didn't survive or if they've recovered from an illness from which others don't normally recover. And many people experiencing this, what we call survivor guilt, they struggle to believe that they're worthy of survival. And if they're Christians, they often ask for what purpose God has got them through, has saved them. Uh, I'm sure many of you are with me in remembering the lovely Janet Perrett, who was a member of our church for a number of years, uh, who is sadly no longer with us. 
But she asked exactly these questions after she suffered a cardiac arrest uh, on her way home from holiday, a long-haul flight. They were two hours out of Heathrow. Her heart stopped beating, and by the heroic efforts of people on board, she was kept alive by uh, CPR, artificial means, until the plane landed. She was whipped off to hospital, and she made it through. But she could not believe that she was still alive, and she kept asking what it was does God still have for me to do on earth? Because by any normal account, she shouldn't have lived. So why me? But you know, we could as easily ask, why not me? Why not me? Because in Ephesians 2, uh, and if you want to turn to that, turn back to that, it's on page 1173, uh, Paul writes quite explicitly that we do have a purpose. And at the very last verse we heard, he spells it out quite clearly. Verse 10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, the meaning of that word handiwork uh, is more broadly considered to be a work of art. God's work of art. And actually, I was chatting to Mike Patterson and Chris Higgins yesterday afternoon, and they said, being more knowledgeable than me, that in the Greek, it's poema, that word handiwork, poem. We are God's poem. Isn't that just wonderful? We are a work of art. We are a poem, and we're saved for a purpose. And all of us have got a role to play in building God's kingdom on earth. And whether that's a small role or whether it's a large role, you know, your Mother Teresa's, your Archbishop of Canterbury's and the like, or whether we are just a person buying a hot drink for a homeless person on a cold day, and I wouldn't call that a little job either, a little purpose, We have works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So there's a thought. We're not just a bunch of molecules randomly thrown together, atoms. We're not just a bunch of cells put together more or less in the shape of a human being. We are not a pointless heap of nothing. We are not useless or hopeless. We're not worthless. We're not rubbish. We are, in fact, someone who is God's work of art. Now, some of you have had those words spoken over you countless times in your life. You're hopeless, you're rubbish, you're worthless, you'll never be good at anything. And some of you have come to believe that is the truth about you. This is not the truth about you. Some of you have come to church feeling like you have no more worth or value to society. That you are just too old, too disabled, too tired, too stupid, too ill, too unemployed, or too unemployable, or too any other label you care to put on yourself or others have given you. Some of you believe this to be the truth about yourself. May I say, wrong. Wrong, dear friends, so wrong. Not one of us, not one of you is worthless in God's eyes. Not one. Every single person is worth so much that Jesus gave up his life for them. That Jesus gave up his life for you. What a gift. What a gift. 
Have you accepted it yet? Have you? Because normally when someone gives you a gift, you don't say, oh, thanks, how much do I owe you? You say, thank you very much. And you open it and you take it and you keep it. The God of heaven believes you are worth the price that he has paid for you of Jesus' death. And he has given you that gift of that gift of eternal life. And he has given you that gift willingly. Now the prophet Isaiah knew this hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. And he wrote in chapter 43 some words that are probably very familiar to many of you. And so I'm going to use the message version, uh, which brings fresh life to things if they're a bit familiar. This is what the Lord says. The God who created you in the first place, Jacob, the one who got you started, Israel. Don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called your name. You're mine. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end. Because I am God, your personal God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I paid a huge price for you. That's how much you mean to me. That's how much you're worth. I love you. I'd sell off the whole world to get you back. Trade the creation just for you. You are of high worth to God, his most precious creation, and he loves you. If you hear nothing else today, hear how much God loves you. And here's a a famous verse from another Old Testament prophet. This time, Jeremiah, a bit of a miserable so-and-so, if ever there was one, by the way, just my opinion, but you know what? But he knew that God loved him and he knew that God had a purpose for him and for his people who at the time he was writing were way far away from home in exile in Babylon, carried off from home and country. Imagine what that must have been like to be carried away from your home. No doubt feeling lost, alone, no doubt wondering where on earth God was in their situation, wondering what on earth he was doing. Wondering why they'd been saved while others left at home had been slaughtered. This is what Jeremiah wrote, chapter 29. Again, famous, so I've used a message. This is God's word. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. When you call on me, come and pray to me. I will listen. When you come looking for me, you'll find me. Yes, when you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you're not disappointed. Reinforcing that point, if I needed to, maybe I didn't, that you are of high worth to God, his handiwork, and he has plans for you. But, there's always a but, isn't there? If we go back to that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, The start point isn't quite so positive, is it? Because Paul turns from his wonderful descriptions in chapter 1 that we've been reading in the last couple of weeks, the descriptions of the great cosmic plans and purposes of God, ending up with the risen, enthroned, Jesus Christ the King. He turns from all that to a much less than wonderful description at the start of chapter 2, 
a bunch of miserable worms that many of us think we are. As for you, Paul writes, as for you, you were dead in your sins when you followed the ways of this world. And he goes on at some length about that. And then he includes himself, all of us, he says, all of us were gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. God's anger was what we should have got. That's what we were, says Paul. That's what we were, dead in our wrongdoing, dead in our selfishness. And the message version has it as you were mired in the old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then you exhaled disobedience. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. Well, that's what we were. So what changed? What changed? Well, God intervened. That's what changed. And the rest of the passage explains this. How God will accomplish his grand purposes, which we heard about in chapter 1, beginning with the salvation of each individual. That's you and me, folks, each individual. And verse 4 onwards gives us the answer to both the questions, why me and the one, uh, what changed? Verse 4 starts with, because of his great love for us, God. Because of his great love for us, God. Not because of us, Not because of anything we've done or could do. It's because of who God is. It's his character. He's a God of grace. Not the kind of grace which means we move elegantly, by the way. I'm sure God does. Grace is a word we use to describe God's kindness. His loving forgiveness. His unmerited favor on us that we don't deserve. Because of his great love for us, God. I wonder if you picked up on a survey a little while ago, it must be said. It was done in America, and it was done to find out the words that people would most like to hear. And I wonder if you can guess what the first set of words that people would most like to hear uh, were. Anybody? I love you. I love you was the thing that most people would like to hear from someone else. I wonder if you can guess what the second phrase might be, after I love you. Any ideas? I forgive you. You've read the survey. Well done, Alison. I forgive you. I love you. I forgive you. And the third phrase, any, any thoughts? Okay, remembering this is America. The third phrase after I love you, I forgive you, Supper's ready. (laughs) Supper's ready. That explains a lot, right? (laughs) Apologies to uh, friends from over the water. But you know what? Daft as it is, isn't that a great summary of the gospel story? Isn't it? You know, of God's grace towards us. We are loved by God. We are forgiven by God. And we are invited to a heavenly banquet 
with God in heaven forever. And communion, of course, is a foretaste of this. We're going to have communion later. How amazing. I love you. I forgive you. And supper's ready. You'll remember that. That's what the nine o'clock people remembered anyway. (laughs) However, let's go on back to the passage slightly more serious. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in, in Christ Jesus. That's his grace, his unmerited favor towards us. As I said, ad infinitum probably now, not based on anything we've done. Remember Paul's assessment of the way that we were sinful, disobedient, only interested in gratifying our own selfish needs and desires. What it's saying is we do not have to do good works in order to impress God. Because of the way God looks at us, he sees what we can become in Jesus. And when we put our faith and our trust in his actions, not our own, that's when we're raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms. That is his plan for us. And you know, that is not the place for a worm. That's not the place for a worm. That is the place for a most beloved child, you and me. So, if you're with me so far, if you're in agreement with me uh, on all this up to now, here comes the sting in the tail, okay? Because it isn't about now just going, yay, I'm saved by grace. I'm here sitting comfortably enjoying my salvation, enjoying my heavenly place in God's kingdom. I'm in, that's all there is to it. God loves me, God saved me through Jesus' death on the cross. Lovely, I'm forgiven, job done, end of story. Uh, No. (laughs) no how about no let's see what verses 8 to 10 have to say about that attitude they say for it is by grace you have been saved through faith this is not from yourself this is the gift of God not by work so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork here it comes created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do there's the rub we have got good things to do which God has prepared for us already. We only just have to identify what those good works might be. Now note, there is no get out clause here. That verse doesn't say this. We are created in Christ Jesus to be the chosen, talented, gifted, able, artistic, clever, capable people or person who will do the good works God has prepared for us, does it? says we are all chosen there's no high bar set in fact there isn't any bar at all don't have to be good enough we are saved by grace for God's purpose all of us whoever we are whatever we think of ourselves we all have a role in sharing out the grace that we have received that's our purpose plain and simple we have received God's grace and in the words of today we just need to pay it forward Pay it forward. It's our actions more than our words that will speak to people uh, of those who don't know Jesus. Isn't there a famous saying which many attribute to St. Francis, um, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Whoever said it, it's so true. Philip Yancey, who's the author of a great book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and lots of other excellent books, by the way, wrote (coughs) that he once read a description of church as a place where a nice, pleasant, bland person stands in front of other nice, pleasant, bland people, urging them to be nicer, more pleasant, 
and more bland. Is that what we want people to think of St. Paul's? That we are bland, ineffective and self-satisfied? Well, surely not. Because as Sophie reminded me yesterday, love isn't bland. Bland is not why we were and we are saved. We were saved for a purpose. And we surely don't want to be bland and ineffective. So the answer to the big questions that get bandied around like, why doesn't God do something to sort out climate change, the homeless problem, global warming, global hunger, whatever, is given, I think, somewhat strangely you may think, but bear with me, by the angels on the mountaintop speaking to the disciples as they stood in bemusement wondering where Jesus had gone when he ascended into heaven and disappeared from their sight. The angel's words to those disciples were, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking at the sky? Implication being the unsaid words, Didn't Jesus just tell you to get moving? Well, get on and do it. Don't hang around. That's it, folks. That's my sermon in a nutshell. What are we doing standing around here, looking at the sky, expecting God to serve all the world's problems and blaming him when he doesn't and being self-satisfied and ineffective and, yes, bland? Philip Yancey puts it like this. We, Jesus followers, are the agents assigned to carry out God's will on earth. Too easily we expect God to do something for us when actually God wants to do something through us. So there we are. Our job, our purpose is to show the world another way to live, the way of grace, the way of love, the way of forgiveness. And we have the Holy Spirit here to help us in that. God has just simply chosen in his almightiness of creation to work through ordinary people like you and me to bring about his fantastic, great global salvation purpose for the whole world. What a privilege. How awesome is that? I want to end with this encouraging challenge from one of my favorite writers and theologians, Tom Wright, who was a bishop of Durham, not the dodgy one, a good one. And he says it better than I ever could. So I'm going to use his words. And by the way, I would love you to hear the breadth of activities that he he lists in this quote. He wrote this, what you do in the present by... Painting, by preaching, by singing, by sewing, by praying, by teaching, by building hospitals, by digging wells, by campaigning for justice, by writing poems, by caring for the needy and loving your neighbour as yourself, whatever you do in the present will last into God's future. These activities, says Tom Wright, are part of what we might call building God's kingdom on earth. So the question, what are we saved for? In answer to the title of this sermon, Saved for a Purpose, well, what are we saved for? Well, not to stand around looking at the sky, as it were, in complacent bemusement and wonder. No. We are saved to be part of the mission 
of showing God's loving kindness, of showing God's forgiveness and his unmerited grace, his unmerited favour to the entire world whenever, however and to whoever we can. Grace and peace be to you, my beloved friends in Christ here at St. Paul's this morning. Grace and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now get out there and share it. Amen.